Father, your word tells us that uh, in our weakness, your strength is made evident. And that you did not choose the wise of the world or the strong, but you chose the despised things of the world. You chose the weak things of the world. And, Father, we can only imagine that of all those you had to choose, Father, you chose us to serve you and to worship you and to follow you because in us, Father, your strength can be made so evident. And, Father, that is a humbling recognition. It is a means of reducing our pride and our self-reliance. It's a way of illustrating, Father, that we are nothing without you. And yet, so often, Father, we live our lives exactly the opposite. I pray, Father, that as we open your word this morning, as we study through Luke, Father, and see how your son was treated in his day, because he did not appear strong, because he did not appear mighty in the eyes of those who saw him in his day, I pray, Father, that we would remember as you serve through us, as you seek to serve your body through us, that we are not to be strong in our own power. We are not, Father, to accomplish things in our own might and effort. But, Father, we are to be a vessel. We are to be one through whom your strength can shine. We are to be the one, Father, who can reveal you by the amazing things we do without the abilities, without the capability so that your Son, Father, would be seen in all we do, so that his message, his truth could be known. That's what we will desire to do, Father, as we study your word this morning, to see the Holy Spirit speaking and to hear him speaking to us and to be responsive to that message. And, Father, we do know that those men and women who heard Jesus in his day rejected him on the basis that they did not see strength, they did not see power, the power they wanted. And yet, Father, the power was always there though it remained invisible to those who would see with earthly eyes and worldly eyes. It was only there for for those, Father, that would see through spiritual eyes. Let us, Father, then be that person this morning, be the person who sees through spiritual eyes and hears according to the Spirit, the one who seeks to serve you, Father, not in our own might, but in yours, seeks to give you the glory. Let all we do here, Father, please you because it is to your glory and according to your name. And uh, as the text unfolds for us to hear this morning, Father, I pray we would know how to use it, how to walk out from here and put it to good work in your name. We look forward, Father, to what you'll speak this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Chapter 11 of Luke. Well, we completed, in the last two weeks, we completed, I guess you'd call it our mini-series on prayer. Uh, You know, I find it interesting, I'll say this just in passing, that Uh, as people engage in conversation with me about how we preach and how we approach our teaching time. And the question naturally arises, well, why do you go verse by verse? Why don't you take time to go into topics, series that uh, people might need to hear? After all, you know, what if your congregation needed to hear about something like prayer and you wanted to give them all the details on prayer? You know, you're not going to do that if you just go verse by verse through Scripture. And I love the fact that as you go through the book, God is good to bring up what he desires to bring up in the moment according to the needs of the body as he knows them. And I don't know them. He knows them. And sure enough, we had a two-week series, if you will, on prayer taken out of the first part of chapter 11. I have to imagine it was because God needed that message to be brought to this body. And I encourage you, if you missed one or the other of those two weeks, um, you know, it would be, I think, helpful if you had both. They work together. There's only half the story present in each one. And so I, I... 
you know, if you need it, let me know if you don't know how to find it. But uh, I would encourage you to, to get the full picture of prayer because it appears that that was the message God wanted for two weeks. And now we move on into one of the more pivotal moments in the Gospel of Luke. Uh, I've been alluding to the significance of this chapter for quite some time. If you've been around for a while, you know I've kept mentioning chapter 11. Chapter 11, the point at which the Gospel reveals Christ being rejected. And that's, in fact, what we're going to begin to develop here today. There are a number of issues from Luke's Gospel and elsewhere in Scripture that we need to consider as we uh, unfold this teaching out of Luke chapter 11. It's not going to be finished today, of course. It will continue into next week and through the rest of the chapter. But we're going to begin today with just a simple recap. And I want to recap just shortly where Jesus is, where he's going, how we got into this place in chapter 11. If you remember, he's moving steadily toward Jerusalem. In fact, if you remember back in chapter 9, he spoke specifically in chapter 9 about having to go to Jerusalem because he was going to die there and ascend. So there's no doubt in Jesus' mind, even back in chapter 9, that he was headed to Jerusalem for a specific purpose. And then, it's interesting, in chapter 10, we saw that he sent the disciples out proclaiming the kingdom of God, calling on the nation of Israel to repent and receive their Messiah. So in thinking about the order, the sequence of events here now, it's sort of a a strange dilemma that in one chapter, chapter 9, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, which, of course, implies that he's going to be rejected. And yet in the very next chapter, he sends the disciples out and says, go preach the kingdom of God so that the nation of Israel would know their Messiah has arrived. Well, that seems fruitless, doesn't it, if he already presumes that he's going to be put to death in Jerusalem? So... At this point, we we have to at least make one conclusion. It seems clear enough that while Jesus anticipated his rejection and his death, he was not hesitating, even still, to declare to the nation of Israel that he had arrived, that he was the Messiah, and to give them fair opportunity to receive him, despite the fact that he knew where things would lead. And as he goes to the cross, as he takes this long journey, remember, it's a 24-chapter book, and we're already seeing him on the road to Jerusalem by chapter 9. As he takes this long journey into Jerusalem for his death, he's going to be preparing his disciples for what happens and for what will follow for them all the way to the cross. And that's part of the lessons that take place along the way. Part of those lessons we saw last week and in the week prior when he taught on prayer. And we'll continue to see those interjections of teaching to the disciples all the way until the cross. So today in Luke chapter 11, verse 14 we're going to begin to introduce this important teaching on how the nation of Israel formally rejects the offer of the kingdom and of their Messiah. Chapter 11, verse 14. And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Others, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. But if by Beelzebul I cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. We'll stop there. As we study this important exchange, I want you to begin to get the scene in your mind. You have Jesus and you have a crowd. But what Luke isn't telling you here specifically that we learn from the other gospel writers is that the crowd includes, as always, Pharisees. 
these religious leaders who, per, who essentially follow Christ at all opportunities so that they can condemn him and criticize him. Because Luke's account gives us only a part of the story, and Matthew's gives us quite a bit more, we're going to study actually both of these Gospels at this point. I've been uh, trying hard as we've gone through the Gospel of Luke not to be tempted to dive into the other Gospels at every opportunity and end up teaching you all four at the same time. I think there's a reason to be in the one book we're in and to focus primarily on it. But the other Gospels don't exist in a vacuum either. You need to look at the full picture that God gives in his word. So we will spend a little more time for, the, for today's lesson in the Gospel of Matthew. Because from his perspective, writing to the Jews, writing to the Jews about their king, about their Messiah, he adds more detail that would have been much more relevant to a Jewish audience than Luke adds for the sake of his Greek audience. So let's put the two together. Before we look at Matthew, though, I want you to consider what we just saw presented here in Luke. Jesus comes upon a man who's indwelt, we're told, by a mute demon. Now, review with me just for a moment how demons work when they inhabit a body. They take over a body, and when they speak, they use the vocal cords of the person that they inhabit. They're all spirit. Demons are, by, you know, by their nature, spirit. They don't have a physical form, except that they take on physical form by virtue of controlling the body of the person they indwell. This demon, we're told, has either chosen to remain mute, in other words, not to speak through the man, or perhaps the man himself is mute physically and can't speak. But in either case, there's no way to communicate with the demon. There's no chance to talk and have the demon respond. Now, in Israel, and that's going to become important here in a moment. Just hold that thought for a moment. In Israel, in this day, casting out demons was not unheard of. In other words, this is not something that was unique to Jesus' ministry. God had long given men in the nation of Israel the ability to cast out demons at times. You can see evidence of that just in the verses we've already read. Jesus refers in verse 19 to the fact that the sons of the Pharisees, the sons of the nation of Israel, cast out demons. And he asks the question, if I'm casting out with the power of the enemy, then who are they using? Point being that it was a given that there were other people casting out demons. That was an accepted thing. People saw it happen. They knew it was possible. They knew that God would grant that power. You can also see a reference to this in Acts chapter 19 when you hear about the Jewish exorcists that were walking around trying to cast out demons in Jesus' name. And they're, they're called exorcists because they had that professional ministry. They were doing that regularly. They just chose to start using Jesus' name now as a means of doing it. So it was possible to cast out demons. Now, there was a specific prescribed way to do it. God had obviously given men the power. Men didn't have this power naturally. And in giving it to men, God had prescribed a certain way to do it. Now, the, the way to do it is not provided in Scripture specifically. You can't go to a place in the, in the Bible and find where God says, here is how you cast out demons. We know it in two ways. We know it from Jewish tradition and their own uh, non-scriptural writing on the practice. But we can also see it inferred in some places in Scripture. And I'm going to show you some of that today. The, pro the specific process of removing a demon as given to the nation of Israel, as practiced by their own people, began first by establishing contact with the demon. And specifically, establishing contact by learning the demon's name. So before I could have any hope to cast a demon out, I had to know the name of the demon. Once I knew the name, then I could cast the demon out by his name. By name, call him out and cast him out, assuming God was granting me the power to do it. You can see examples of Jesus himself following this very same pattern when he cast out demons. Do you remember when he went into the tombs? And he encountered the man who was breaking chains and running around naked and screaming and demon-possessed. And the first thing he went up to the man and did was ask what the name of the demon was. And the demons responded by saying, we are legion, for we are many. 
That was the practice. Jesus was actually following the established practice for how Jewish rabbis, Jewish teachers, would approach a demon-possessed person and cast him out. And he did it by first establishing the name, uh, knowing the name. But now, what if the man was mute? What if the man was mute and you couldn't establish contact? You couldn't get the man to speak, so you couldn't learn the name of the demon. Well, if the man was mute, that created a dilemma for the exorcist, and because of that dilemma, no one could remove that demon. It was impossible to cast out a mute demon. And it was, it was never done. It had never been done, because God had given a specific way to do it, and if you couldn't speak to the demon, you couldn't use the one prescribed way that God had given and so there was no hope for that person. Let me give you an example of that. In Mark, Mark chapter 9, verse 17, here's what we hear. One of the crowd answered Jesus and said, Teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. And I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. Being mute, in the case of this boy, prevented the disciples from casting out that demon. Jesus comes along, though, and he cures the boy. And when he cures the boy, the disciples come to him later and say, how did you do that? Listen to these verses out of Mark again, Mark 9, 25. When Jesus saw a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing him into terrible convulsions, it came out, and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up, and he got up. And when he came into the house, the disciples began questioning Jesus privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Now, based on what we've already studied concerning prayer, then you should already know why prayer alone can heal this boy. Because only God himself has the power to remove a mute demon. And the reason is because he's reserved that power to himself. It's not that he couldn't grant that power to men. It's that for his purpose, he had granted men the ability to cast out only under certain circumstances. He had reserved this particular circumstance as one that only he and he alone would be able to do. So if you wanted it done, you had to pray. You had to appeal to God himself and ask him to step in and remove this mute demon. Because men men had not been granted the power to do it. The reason God withheld this power is because, as we're going to study today in Luke, God had decided that this would be one of many signs that would be specific to the Messiah. That when a man could come along and cast out a mute demon, that would be a sign that you're looking at the Messiah. Because God had given that specific limitation and said no man will ever be able to do this except God himself in the form of man. Now, returning to Luke, we're, we're gonna have, we have enough background now to begin to make some sense of what goes on now in this scene in Luke. As we've already learned, the ability to cast out a mute demon was something that the Jewish culture had long associated with God himself. They had learned that the ability to cast out a mute demon was something God reserved for himself. So Jewish tradition had grown up around that fact to say that when the Messiah comes, one of the ways we'll know the Messiah is we will see him do that very thing. We will see him cast out a mute demon. Now look at the exchange we've already just uh, read in Luke. In verse 14, Jesus, we're told, casts out a mute demon. And look at the reaction of the crowd. The crowd is amazed. Now we've heard that before, but I believe in this case what you're seeing is specifically the crowd reacting to the fact that this one particular miracle is being performed before them. 
They're caught off guard. Their amazement stems from the fact that this is one of those, quote, Messiah miracles. We've just seen one of the Messiah miracles. The crowd stands amazed at Jesus. Some were told scoff. Some declare that Jesus must be the devil himself. Some begin to ask for a test. I want you to look with me now, as I said earlier, in Matthew. Matthew chapter 12. You can kind of put your finger there and we'll flip back and forth a little. Matthew chapter 12 covers this same moment. Matthew gives us a little more detail about the moment around which he performs this miracle and the people watch. And listen to what happens in Matthew 12:22. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. And the crowds were amazed and they were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now, in this short exchange, we hear two important details that add to what we've already seen in Luke. First, look at the crowd's exclamation. The crowd sees this miracle, a miracle unique to the Messiah, they've been taught. And what is their response? Their response is, this can't be the son of David, can it? Now, the son of David, it's a messianic term. It's a messianic reference. It comes first out of the Psalms. David wrote of the son of man in the Psalms. And then later in Daniel chapter 7, you see the term used specifically to refer to the Messiah. So that we know now that the word son of man, that phrase, the son of man, is a term used for the Messiah. So here you have the crowd seeing one of those messianic miracles. And their reaction is the right reaction, at least in the sense that they understand its significance. They say, whoa, This can't be the Messiah, can it? I mean, he just did something we're told is limited to the Messiah. But but Jesus of Nazareth, he can't be the Messiah, can he? They understood the miracle. They understood its significance, but they weren't ready to accept it. At least not at that point. Why are they asking it the way they did? They're asking it the way they did because Jesus doesn't fit in their expectation for what the Messiah should be, for how the Messiah should appear. You know, they, they wanted a conquering leader, a man like David. They wanted a powerful delivering leader, someone like Moses. They wanted a rich, powerful world leader, someone like Solomon. You know, they didn't see Jesus, this itinerant, you know, poor minister, rabbi, coming from a podunk backwater town called Nazareth. That was not their impression of who the Messiah would be. Perhaps more importantly, though, they didn't, They had not been expecting God's salvation to take the form of a spiritual salvation. They expected that the the salvation that was promised through the Messiah, the deliverance that was promised through a Messiah, was an earthly one. They were looking for an earthly deliverance, a deliverance from the bondage of Rome, a salvation from the enemies of military enemies of the nation of Israel. They had not, in in the teaching that the Jewish nation had brought brought up around the idea of a Messiah, they had not built it up as a spiritual salvation. Someone who would come, whose purpose in coming was to give us an eternal salvation, an eternal freedom from bondage. They saw it strictly in earthly terms. Someone who would come like a Solomon or a David or a Moses. They wanted an earthly, material blessing. So when he comes declaring the kingdom, and comes in the form that he came in, they look at him and they think, that can't be it. I see the sign, but that can't be it. And then having come to him in faith, the few that did, and the few that follow in the centuries later, 
Those who would understand the kingdom is an internal one. The kingdom, at least for our experience now, is a kingdom of saints, soon to be a real kingdom on earth upon his return. For that group, there is material blessing potentially. There is earthly reward potentially. There are things that come from following Christ in this life that are truly of value, yes. But they're, they're secondary. They're icing on the cake. They're, they're a function of having become a believer and following after Christ, walking in his ways and seeing a blessing that follows. They are not the means to the end. They're not the reason we come to Christ. In the day that he came and talked to the Jewish nation, though, they were all about the material, not the spiritual. And so they see the signs and they can't believe it. The people effectively reverse the formula. If the formula, if, if you want to use the term formula, if the formula is come in faith, believe in faith, take for granted what you hear and believe it is true before proof, and then watch the proof follow. Watch the spiritual change in your life. Watch the blessings that can follow. But believe before you see those things. They wanted it the other way around. They said, for example, they wanted to see proof of his power. They wanted signs, we're told. They tested him, we're told. Show us something so that we will believe. Be powerful so that we will follow you. Destroy the Roman army so that we know that you are God. Do those things we want done in this world, and then we'll know that we can trust you for the next. And what Scripture tells us is, it's exactly the opposite. And I'll tell you that today, the message really isn't that different. We don't have Jesus standing before us in the flesh, but I'll tell you that for many people in the world, the message of the Christian faith is rejected because they want to see the physical, earthly proof of the power of God, of the truth of the gospel, before faith. Then they're willing to fall in line if, you're willing, if you can meet their test. That backwards approach actually nullifies the definition of faith. We know from Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the conviction of things unseen. It is a belief in something that cannot be proven, that is not self-evident, that requires us to take the Word of God on its face and trust it without anything else to go on. Being certain about the unprovable, about something that's yet to be revealed, is faith. And that's why faith comes out of the heart, not out of the mind. It's interesting to me that Scripture often refers to a heart of a believer, having a believing heart. You know, does God not understand that the organ of the body responsible for thinking is the brain? I, I suspect God who created us knows very well which organ is responsible for thought. So why didn't he say it that way? Why wasn't his Scripture reference constantly, believe with your mind? Know God with your mind. How he, why doesn't he say that? He could. He knows that's the organ where thought takes place. Why does he keep saying the heart? He knows the heart is the organ that just pumps blood around in your body. What he uses the word heart for is because it's representative of a different kind of response. Rather than an intellectual response, he says the response can't be explained in intellectual terms. The response of a true believer to something that on its face is foolishness, Paul calls it. It is foolishness to those who are wise. It seems false to those who are doing all their thinking up here. To those who come to Christ, though, in faith, it is a spiritual response that then is followed by an intellectual understanding of what it is you believed in. Do you, do you have a full picture of Scripture and doctrine before you become a believer? Is, that, is it sort of like getting a medical degree? I have to know this in detail, and then at the very end I graduate and become a Christian? No, no we all know that's not how it works. You become a Christian, then you open this up and you say, what is it I believe in? I believe in it, but I don't know what it is yet. Doesn't that strike you as odd? And yet that's proof in and of itself that God is working in our heart, not in our mind. Heart meaning in our soul, in our spirit. 
and that our response to him is something other than an intellectual grasping of the truth. Though they work together, the heart is where God begins. These people were working up here, if you will. They were waiting for proof in an intellectual way. And if they were to receive it and then agree with Christ, there's no faith in that. Things which can be seen are not faith. They are self-evident. And today, if you're confronted with someone who would have, would have you meet some test, some intellectual test before they become a believer, you can certainly engage in the discussion because who knows what door that might open. But I would caution you against pandering, against satisfying an intellectual desire to prove the existence of the gospel before they believe. Because even if you were somehow able to make that proof available to them, it's not faith. And not being faith, it can disappear in a moment. Somebody can come along with a better argument tomorrow and give them reason to doubt what it is they say they agree with. Faith, on the other hand, is once for all and never ends. And so the crowd here says they want to see a miracle. Now, I like the way that the the gospel records their exclamation. This can't be the son of David, can it? They didn't say, behold, the son of David. They didn't say, this must be the son of David. They didn't even say, could this be the son of David? No. They said, this can't be the son of David. It implies right from the very beginning, doubt. The sad thing in in my mind here is they knew what to look for, so much so that they actually recognized it when it happened, and yet they denied it. The sign came, it was understood and recognized for what it was, and they denied it. They stood up against the truth, and they denied it. The second thing we can understand from Matthew's account here, the first is that the crowd recognized that it was the Messiah, and yet they denied it. The second thing to understand from the account of Matthew is that the Pharisees in the crowd were the ones stirring the crowd to that denial. Remember, these were the religious leaders of the day, and we've already said they were opposed to Jesus' ministry and against him personally at all turns. And they were desperate to diminish him in the eyes of the people. So when he performs this miracle, a miracle that they know as well is unique to the Messiah, they can't explain that away very easily. They know it as well as the crowd does. We just saw a Messiah miracle. Uh Uh-oh. How do we deal with this? How do we discredit that? This is not unprecedented, by the way. Their reaction to him in this moment is not unprecedented. It's already happened once before. In Matthew 9, chapter 9, 32, listen to this. As they were going out, a mute, demon-possessed man was brought to him. After the demon was cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed and were saying, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees were saying, he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons. So at some earlier point, Jesus had performed the same miracle. He had a very similar reaction. You notice the crowd said, we've never seen this before. Well, of course they've never seen it before. It's never been done before. It was reserved for the Messiah. And there again, you see the Pharisees in the crowd, carping, tearing down what's going on, dismissing it as simply the enemy at work. And here they are doing it again, now in chapter 11 of of Luke, chapter 12 of Matthew. So Jesus has proven himself through this unique miracle. The crowd exclaims that it's unprecedented, and yet they still reject him. All right, now it's important to understand what's going on here, and this is getting to the main issue of why I said chapter 11 is pivotal in in the gospel. Scripture is teaching us here a fundamental truth about our response to the deity of Christ. A fundamental truth of Scripture. As the Pharisees came face to face with the recognition that Jesus was God himself, That miracle, undeniable, undisputed, 
clearly proof that this was the Messiah, had been promised as proof, taught to be the proof. The crowd recognized it was that kind of proof. There was no one in the crowd saying, wait, 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 wait. Are we sure that this is a miracle that's attested to the Messiah? Are we sure that this is supposed to be a sign that, that the Messiah is... No one, no one said that. They all understood that it was a sign of who the Messiah was. When they came face to face with that proof, they reacted by denying the revelation that they had been given. Now, I want you to understand this. We've said this before. How do I understand the Scriptures? Because the Holy Spirit gives me that revelation. How does someone know who the Messiah is? Because the Holy Spirit gives them that revelation. No one can come to the Son except that the Father first draw them. There is a necessary interim step to faith that involves the Holy Spirit, who is the instrument within the Trinity for this purpose, drawing men to Christ by making revelation available to them that Jesus is the Messiah. And in that moment, when you come face to face with the proof, when you know who the Messiah is, you have your choice. And if the choice is to deny, to reject the Messiah in that moment, it's a fundamental moment in that person's life. Who is performing? Let me, let me remind you of something else. Who is performing these miracles through Jesus? You think for a moment, well, he's God. He's doing it. Yeah, yeah, but wait a minute. We've taught on this already. He's lowered himself purposely, taking on the form of man, giving up power that he had in his place next to the Father for the purpose of performing the role the Father had given him. And because he's limited himself by taking on the form of man, he now depends on the Holy Spirit to give him power to do what he does in his ministry. We've studied this at length. We've said Jesus has taken the form of man to become and then become reliant on the Holy Spirit. And for all his supernatural power, he depends on the Holy Spirit to give him that insight, to give him knowledge of what men are thinking, to give him the capability to heal, to give him the power to do the, the, the demon uh, exorcisms that he's doing. We saw the one example in Nazareth where he couldn't do the healing because the Holy Spirit was not enabling him to do it in that moment because the people did not have faith. They were testing him rather than looking to him in faith. So when the Pharisees here declare, and I want you to listen to this carefully, when they declare that the signs that they have been given are not proof that Jesus is the Messiah, but rather are proof of the work of Satan, these religious leaders are not only maligning Jesus in this moment, which they've been doing all along. They've turned an important corner, a corner that they'll never be allowed to come back and revisit. They are beginning now to malign the Holy Spirit. They are blaspheming the Holy Spirit and, by association, God the Father. They are taking now a specific revelation given them in the moment by the Holy Spirit, one that is clearly taken root because they recognize what they've seen, and they are turning it back and denying it. And more than denying it, they're attributing it to the enemy, blaspheming the Holy Spirit, in other words, in that moment. When someone is confronted by clear, undeniable power of God, whether through the Word of God or through the lives of His people or through the circumstances of His own life, God can use all of those ways to bring revelation to men. But when it comes, however it comes, and they are face-to-face with the truth, and when someone decides to reject that revelation as to the deity, deity of Christ, to deny Christ, they aren't merely a neutral observer any longer. If they, and they never were, but they have taken a stand in a very public way. I think we sometimes think that there are those, on the one hand, who are adamantly for Jesus. We'll call them Christians, for lack of a better term. And then we have those somewhere else that are adamantly opposed to Jesus. Atheists, I don't know, Muslims, Jesus haters, whoever they are. 
And then we imagine there must be this whole group in the, in the middle, people who've just never heard of Jesus. People who are just ambivalent, who are undecided, who aren't sure yet. And they're somehow in this third group in our minds. They're neutral, if you will. But that's not what Scripture teaches us. Scripture doesn't support that conclusion at all. I want you to look at the Pharisees as an example of that. They see clear evidence of who Jesus is. They reject it. But it wasn't enough to reject him. They also ensure that others around them are rejecting him by attributing what they saw to Satan rather than to the Holy Spirit. They are therefore enemies of Jesus, enemies of God himself, and allies of Satan. And look how Jesus responds. In verse 11, I'm sorry, in verse 17 of chapter 11, he states that any kingdom divided against itself will fall. That's the motto, by the way, of, of the state of Kentucky. United we stand, divided we fall. We've heard that phrase probably before, many times before. It's on our coinage. United we stand in Latin. It's, it expresses a simple idea. We all understand this idea very easily, right? When any single entity is made from smaller parts, those parts have to work together toward a common goal. And if one part is set against another that entity is going to tear itself apart. So anytime you have an entity made up of parts, they all have to work together to the same goal. If they're opposed to one another, they'll tear themselves apart. This is especially true if that entity is engaged in some kind of warfare, in some kind of battle against another common enemy. If they're not working together, they have no hope to stand in the face of an attack. Jesus responds then to this ridiculous comment on the part of the Pharisees, and he says to them that if he were Satan, if he were doing the work of Satan, it would have been the height of foolishness for Satan to go around defeating the very demons who work on his behalf. To go around to people who are being possessed and owned by these demons and cast them out. That would be like me turning the gun on my own army. It makes no sense. He then turns that attack back on the Pharisees in verse 19. He says to the Pharisees, the sons of Israel are busy casting out demons too. And then with this comment, he adds... That they're, he basically reveals that they're using a double standard on him. You're willing to accept that when your sons do it, it's always God. Anytime your son casts out a demon, well, naturally, God was working in the moment. I cast out a demon, must be the enemy. Well, if you assume for a moment the enemy would ever turn on himself, why didn't you assume he was doing it with your sons? What makes you think they're working with God and I'm not? It's a double standard. It illustrates the stupidity of their comment. And Jesus makes the final point for the crowd in verse 20. In verse 20, he states the obvious conclusion that if you see a man doing things that only the finger of God can do, your own teaching has told you that, then you only have one conclusion to make about who this person is and about what they're doing. The man is the Christ. He is the Messiah. And if he is, then it means that his arrival in your midst means that the kingdom of God has come. If you see somebody doing something that you know comes only from God, then you're looking at God. And if God is in your midst, the kingdom of God has come. And yet, in the face of that clear and unmistakable conclusion, they reject him and they side with the Pharisees' argument that Jesus was the disciple. Look what goes on in the next verse of chapter 11, verse 21. He says, When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he has relied and distributes his plunder. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. And in this parable, Jesus is illustrating just how wrong the Pharisees are. Taking from what they said earlier about Satan, he now expands it a little bit and includes the crowd in this issue. He says, The circumstances of this moment argue 
not for the conclusion that the Pharisees had, that I'm Satan, but actually the circumstances of the moment argue for exactly the opposite conclusion. Jesus tells us for how that when you have a strong man guarding his treasure, he's going to do so with his full might. And he's not going to easily relinquish those things he treasures. Only when someone stronger comes along and removes his armor, only then is he going to be forced to give up that thing that he treasures. And from that simple story, he's, he's illustrating to the crowd an obvious conclusion here. The strong man in the world is the enemy, is Satan. And he has a certain amount of power. He has a certain amount of ability in this life. And his treasure are the lost souls of this world that he controls, whether they know it or not. And when one of his demons takes possession of a lost soul and indwells that body, he's not going to give it up easily. He's not willing easily to relinquish it. But he will if he's forced to by someone who's stronger. Only then would you see a demon cast out successfully. So Jesus forces the enemy to depart a body. The enemy leaves reluctantly. That we've seen in the way he throws bodies down. They foam at the mouth. They leave screaming. There's no doubt this demon does not want to leave. And he does it only because God has infinitely more power than the enemy. And so his parable illustrates the absurdity, again, of the Pharisees' claims. It teaches that there is a war underway. There are two sides, not many. And in that war, the enemy is fighting tooth and nail to retain his ground and his treasure. And only under the power of God does he retreat. And when you see that retreat take place, you should have at least enough sense to understand who to attribute the success to. Not to the enemy himself. That makes no sense. It was to God. In verse 23, then he says, you are either for me or you are against me. And as the Pharisees have come into this moment and they have rejected Jesus on the basis that he is Satan, they have blasphemed the Holy Spirit on the basis that what they saw that they knew was attributed to God, they credited to to Satan. And when the crowd accepted that interpretation and aligned themselves with the Pharisees, they set themselves up as enemies of God. They are now all against Christ. This is the formal moment when the nation of Israel rejects their Messiah. Now, you could look at me and you could say, well, wait a minute. There were easily millions of people in the nation of Israel in that day. You have a handful of them here. You have the Pharisees. You have the crowd. How is it, Steve, that you could say that the entire nation of Israel now is on the hook, is guilty of rejecting their Messiah? Well, let me turn that question around for you for a moment. The text itself will bear this out as we move forward in Luke. But even before we see what the text presents, think of it yourself. How were they to accept their Messiah? Let's turn it around for a moment. Let's presume for a moment that Israel would have accepted their Messiah. What would that have meant? What does accepting the Messiah look like in that day? We're talking about Jesus showing up saying, I am here to be your king, to establish the kingdom of God on earth and to rule the earth in peace to place Israel as the chief nation of the world, me as king over that nation and over all nations, and to rule with an iron rod to establish my kingdom. That's the prophecy of the Messiah. That's what it meant for the Messiah to come. So he's coming with that offer in hand. Had it been accepted, how would that have happened physically in the nation of Israel? Do you think they would have had a vote? Do you think they would have taken a poll? How would they have done it? Well, in practical terms, the leaders of the nation the religious leaders of the nation, would have recognized him, declared him to be the Messiah, and declared to all the people, your Messiah has come. This is he. The kingdom of God has arrived. And in the power of that message coming from the religious leaders, it's 
to be expected that the nation would have fallen behind them in accepting who that person was. Now, does that mean that every single man, woman, and child in the nation might have personally accepted that he was the Messiah? Perhaps not. And perhaps in that they would be judged. But as a nation, those who speak on behalf of the nation have the power to direct the course of that nation. That's true in our world today. That's been true in every nation God has ever established. So if those same people now formally reject him and declare to the crowd, no, this isn't God, this is Satan. That also suffices as the national formal rejection of his messiahship. Though some in the nation may accept him. You see how it works both ways? So in this moment, you're seeing the, the, those who are the leaders of the nation. Remember, they don't have anybody higher than a Pharisee leading them. They have the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, the lawyers. That's their government under Rome. That group has formally declared that this is not God, but rather this is Satan. As I've often said here and in other classes I've taught, there's only two kinds of people in the world. You've heard that phrase before. You'll never see it better illustrated than in these verses out of Luke. From God's perspective, there are not different races. From God's perspective, there are not different people. There are not different religions. There are not different religions from God's perspective. There are not different denominations within the Christian religion from God's perspective. There are only, spiritually speaking, two kinds of people in the world. Those who are for Christ and those who are against him. Those who work with him because they believe in him and those who work against him because they don't. And anything else you want to lay on top of those two divisions, any other titles, any other ways you want to divide up the groups are meaningless. If I take one of those two groups and divide it ten ways, it's still the same group in God's mind. And what we now see in these verses are that those who are with Jesus are those who believe his claims. They're the ones who have faith in his word, the ones who trust in him. But those who are against him are those who call him a liar. Those who are against him are those who deny his claims, who ignore his call to repentance. They are like their father, the devil. And they are the enemy's treasure, though they may not even realize it. Next week, we're going to go into Easter, as you know. We're going to celebrate Easter here. And as we celebrate in Resurrection Sunday, I can't think of a better time to be asking this question of ourselves and of those we love and those in our family and our friends. What side are you on? You know, I often find that's an interesting way to engage in a conversation with someone who you think may be a Christian, but you're not sure, or maybe you know they're not. Rather than ask them, are you a Christian? Rather than ask them, are you a particular denomination? Or what religion do you believe in? Or how do you think you get to heaven? Those are good questions, perhaps, but the main question, the fundamental question is, what do you think of Jesus? Of the man, of the person, and of the deity? What is your view of that person? Who is he? And in the face of proof, of obvi- if they say, well, I don't know, I don't know anything about him, bring them the proof of, of the gospel message. Bring them the scripture that tells us who he is and why he came. And in the face of that revelation, it could be that in that moment was the moment God has provided through the Holy Spirit for them to hear this message from you, but through the Holy Spirit. In that moment, the test is being given to them, just as it was to the Pharisees. How will you respond to the man of Christ? Now, if they say, well, I don't know which denomination I belong to. I don't know if I can understand this doctrine or the other. It doesn't matter. That can come later. It will come later. But in their response to the man, everything is on the line. I think sometimes our own opportunities to witness get muddy. We kind of complicate it a little bit because we, we know we have all these other issues that have come along for us later and we want to reconcile them and work them out and we want to include them in our conversations for the sake of others. 
But maybe that's premature. Maybe we ought to go back a step and remember what we were the day we were saved. Someone who didn't understand the detail except to know that there is a man that I have to understand and reconcile with. The man of Jesus. If that man, and I understand who that man is and believe in who that man is, then I'm already on the road. I just need to understand where I'm going and what it means. But if I haven't made that decision yet, I'm still on the sidelines. I'm still working with the enemy. And any discussion of doctrine, of denominations and the like is pointless to that person because it's gaining them nothing while they sit on the side of the road. When we go to Easter next week, and as we enter into it this week, as we look forward to it in this week, I would ask you to consider for yourself, because I don't know each of you individually well enough to be sure what you're thinking about where you stand, on what side of the road, if you will, you position yourself. If you can say without any question in your own heart, if you have no doubt, if you have no uh, reason to hesitate in declaring Jesus is God himself in the flesh, he is the reason I have opportunity to be reconciled by his death on the cross. My sins are forgiven and my trust in that is my salvation. If you can agree with that statement and believe it, then you know where you stand. Now it's a matter of putting that faith to work in the kingdom. But if that statement causes you question in your mind, if you're not sure you agree with those words, then you are his enemy. And by his enemy, you will see judgment. The opportunity to turn is an opportunity that will only last so long in anyone's life. I pray that if someone in this room is thinking right now that they have not made that commitment, that that decision in their mind is still an open decision, an unanswered question, I would pray that they would not leave today, this room today, without the opportunity to come talk to me or someone else about whether or not their faith is true. Let me have an opportunity to assure you if it is simply a misunderstanding. Let me have the opportunity to teach you, on the other hand, if you're not sure you believe. Let's go to prayer and let's end our day looking forward to the week to come and Easter around the corner. Father, I lift up from our prayer and our prayer today from our study those in here, Father, who've heard this message and may be questioning even now how they stand in relationship to the man of Jesus. Those who may be hearing these messages, Father, at a later time, I pray as well they are considering in their heart how to respond to the man, not to the religion, not to the rules, not to the denominational names, but only to the man. And if the man, Jesus, standing before them now, performing miracles through his word that substantiate who he is, if that, Father, is enough to sway their hearts, and I pray it is, I would pray, Father, they would have the courage to state it publicly in this room this morning or to others as they have an opportunity. Father, I pray this message has been glorifying to you and has spoken according to your will. Let us all go out from this place here this morning, Father, with a heart to go to the world that we encounter in the week to come. As minds are turned toward Easter, as the conversation comes up, as friends talk about their plans in the Weekend ahead, I pray, Father, we would have an opportunity to ask that one question, the one question that matters above all others. So who do you think Jesus was? And in that moment, Father, as the Holy Spirit gives us opportunity, may we offer the hope that lies within us, the hope of resurrection like your Son did before us on Easter, the hope, Father, of eternal life present with you for all time to come. Hope, Father, to be restored from this body of sickness and pain and sin. Hope, Father, of eternal treasure, eternal reward. Reward, Father, first and foremost, of being in your presence. 
Give us an opportunity this week, Father. Make us worthy of it. Give us the words we would need in those moments. And in all that we do, Father, let us be a light in this world. Thank you, Father, for your word this morning as we study through Luke and in the weeks to come. Continue to show us, Father, how the world came to a decision point that we ourselves face. And as we see their rejection of your Son, I pray that we would know better. That if we have not accepted him, we would. And if we have accepted him, that we would live a life worthy of his sacrifice. And all these things, Father, I lift them up in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.